Isaiah chapter 53, starting at the first verse. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then we go on to Romans to 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that you will help us this morning to understand better in our hearts as well as in our minds the meaning and significance of your death on the cross for us. Amen. In the last few weeks, I think it's been hard not to despair of our world and the way it is headed. Evil seems to have got the upper hand and it's difficult to be optimistic about the future. The bombing in Westminster just over a week ago reminded us that we are by no means insulated from world events and tendencies. And to be honest, that atrocity pales into insignificance compared to the suffering of the peoples of Yemen or Mosul, the plight of refugees everywhere, the tensions in the South China Sea and the nuclear posturing of North Korea, the scourge of corruption in countries such as South Africa or Brazil. In the halcyon days of the 1980s and 1990s, we persuaded ourselves that things were getting better worldwide, spread of peace, democracy and prosperity. I guess we remember it well. We could not have been more mistaken. It no longer seems inappropriate to talk of evil stalking our world, though even that word has been hijacked as a slogan and hence devalued. And it is in this situation that we as Christians have an advantage. We have an explanation of what is happening and we have a hope that things can and will be different. We use the old-fashioned word sin to understand our world, and indeed ourselves as part of fallen humanity, and we appeal to the most unlikely solution. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. We explored the diagnosis of sin in the last two sermons in this series, and now we turn to the solution, as spelled out by St. Paul in Romans 8. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2 of Romans 8. Verse 1, in Christ, no condemnation. Verse 2, because the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I think we need to recall two key points from the previous sermons on the pervasive nature of sin and on its consequences. On the pervasive nature of sin, in February we noted that sin is omnipresent. Human beings by nature turn away from God to seek freedom to live their lives as they please they have a predisposition to find their identity in and to live for material things or sexual experience or the exercise of power over others. Moreover, sin is inescapable. It's woven into the fabric of our communities and our social institutions, into the political and economic life of nations and into international relations and global institutions. However hard we try, we cannot avoid sin of the kind that the book of Leviticus describes as unintentional sin. That is sin which arises from inevitably from living in our world. 
We also noted in the sermon in March that sin attracts God's implacable hostility. Zero tolerance. What St. Paul calls the wrath of God. Why? Because sin is so destructive of God's plan and intentions for the world he created. But someone might say, isn't God being too intolerant, why can't he relax a bit? I think that betrays a lack of understanding of the pernicious effects of sin. In a different context, for example, imagine taking a relaxed attitude to the Ebola virus. What then are the pernicious effects of human sin? They include the breakdown of relationships of all kind, with hostility and distrust in place of love, and mutual service, and of course, the destruction of God's creation. But the most pernicious effect is death. Not just as a, a biological event, but the dissolution of the self, the meaningless end to the narrative of our lives, the moral consequences of lives lived for ourselves. That is, not in relationship with God and loving and serving him, and not loving and serving our neighbor. That is the law of sin and death <clears throat> that St. Paul is writing about in verse two. And as we saw in last month's sermon, the wages of sin is death. So when he writes, there is no condemnation, because verse two, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death, we should experience relief, astonishment, joy, and hope. It's a bit like a novel that has an unexpectedly good ending, and there aren't many of those nowadays. But this is no contrived happy ending. As St. Paul goes on to explain in the next two or three verses, and his central affirmation, on which we're going to focus this morning, comes in verse three. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Or as he wrote to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering for us. It's obvious that St. Paul is pointing to the cross of Christ. So what's going on here? Let me outline what makes sense to me, taking the key phrases in reverse ordering. That is, to be a sin offering, in the likeness of sinful man, God did by sending his own son. So let's deal with the first, to be a sin offering. <clears throat> These words were used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew for a sin offering in the book of Leviticus, which book you haven't probably read recently, but you may recall is mainly about the sacrificial system. Leviticus 4 outlines the regulations for a sin offering which could be offered on behalf of the whole Israelite community or its leaders or an individual member of the community in cases where the sins were unintentional. It is an offering that addresses the fact that as human beings living in communities, we are involved in a culture of sin, whether we like it or not. The ritual for the sin offering proceeded with the worshippers laying their hands on the head of the sacrificial animal symbolizing the transference of the sins of the worshippers to the animal, which is then slaughtered. 
Leviticus 4 explains that this sacrifice makes atonement for the worshippers and they will be forgiven. Their relationship with God will be restored. I'm sure I am not the only one here this morning to find this ritual difficult to stomach. Very few of us, if any, have ever witnessed a ritual slaying of an animal, though I understand there is footage on the internet if you know where to find it. But for the first readers of the Old Testament, and even in New Testament times, it would have been commonplace and completely normal. So we are at a huge disadvantage. So we need to probe a bit to see if we can find a way to understand what's going on. First, we note that the ritual on its own is not sufficient for the Old Testament prophets. So the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. Stop bringing me meaningless sacrifices. And parallel passages can be found in Amos and in other prophetic writings. The context suggests that the sacrificial offerings were not being matched by genuine repentance and reformation of life. Indeed, the opposite. The offerings were no more than paying a premium to keep God pacified. Whereas the ritual should have served as a dramatic presentation of underlying truths that God will not tolerate human sin, that the consequences of sin are very serious, as indicated by the death of the animal, and the sacrifice is an acknowledgement of that on the part of the worshipper. We don't have many rituals nowadays, at least not overtly. One ritual we do have is the marriage ceremony. The dressing up, the flowers, the eating and drinking, and partying. But that is not what marriage is about in reality, though I fear some think that it is. The reality lies in the promises made by the couple as the foundation of their future life together. The rest is just a celebration, expressing the joy of everyone involved. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of what is really needed to deal with the fearsome problem of human sin. It taught the worshipper that God was serious about sin and could not be dissuaded from his determination to deal with it radically. Indeed, his determination to put an end to it because of its appalling consequences for the human race and God's creation. But how? Let's go one step back in those words and take the second phrase. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, God made his son who had no sin to be sin for us. The direct implication is that our sinfulness is transferred to Jesus. Just as the sin of the Israelite worshipper was transferred to the sacrificial animal as a substitute. I think that is true, but it's not, I believe, the whole story. You may recall from last month's sermon that I made a contrast between the two humanities 
Those who are in Adam, characterized by sin, whose lives are lived without reference to God and sometimes in open rebellion against him, and lives that lead to death. And the contrast is with the Christian hope of resurrection and new life, the whole point of the events of Easter. In Christ, we belong to a new humanity with the problem of our human sinfulness decisively resolved. Christ acts as our representative. His goal is to establish that new humanity, new humanity of which we can then be a part. And he does that by dying on the cross in our place. As our representative, he is also able to be our substitute. The sacrificial system of Leviticus had pointed to what was needed to deal with human sinfulness and the death of Christ on the cross completely fulfilled that need. Note that Christ's death on the cross was not just physical. His cry of dereliction on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is traditionally interpreted as his recognition of his role as our representative, dying for the sins of the whole world, accepting death as punishment for sin, involving separation from God the Father, who is the source of life. I think we need to ponder Jesus' role as the representative of a new humanity in Christ. How can he act for all humankind? It's not a way that comes easily to us. Surely we're all responsible for our own destiny. I could think of one contemporary parallel. When a sports team wins a competition, the trophy is collected by the captain of the team on behalf of his team. He receives it as the representative of them all. There is an older model of representation which will be familiar to us from uh, Bible stories. Recall the duel between David and Goliath, where Goliath was the Philistine champion, challenging the Israelites to provide a warrior to fight with him. Now, this form of warfare was approved in ancient Greece, and the theory was that the gods were on the side of the winner, or that the winner's god was stronger than the loser's god. The winner took all, and further costly fighting in terms of blood spilt was avoided. So we might like to think of Jesus as our champion against the powers of sin and death. Another picture of representation appears in Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which was read to us earlier. You will have noted that the servant suffers on behalf of his people. He takes upon himself the transgressions of his people. He bears their iniquities. He is led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb, and he pours out his life unto death. His death dealt with the sinful rebellion that had taken the people of God into exile so that they could return to their own land. This chapter is apparently quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament text. So we should take its model of representation very seriously as it provides the background to the sacrifice of Jesus. 
So we've had Jesus in the likeness of sinful man is our representative and substitute dying on the cross for us. And finally, God did this by sending his own son. Verse 3. God did by sending his own son. God takes the initiative to deal with human sin since there is nothing humanity can do to extricate itself from its predicament. God loved and loves this fallen world despite the appalling damage that humanity has wreaked in its rebellion against him. So he sends his son to take upon him the sin of the world, to absorb its penalty, and to be the founder of a restored humanity. It's sometimes suggested that there's something unjust about God the Father requiring his son to be the sacrifice. But that is to misunderstand the relationship between father and son, as St. Paul puts it in Philippians 2.6. Christ Jesus being in the very nature of God, being made in human likeness, became obedient under death, even death on a cross. What Christ suffered, God himself suffered. I can't pretend to fully comprehend what that meant or means. But never let us find ourselves dividing Jesus from his Father. So where does that leave us? I think there are three things to remember. First, the initiative in dealing with the human condition, the catastrophe of sin, comes from God himself. Second, the initiative involves Jesus becoming a human being as our representative, the head of a new humanity. Secondly, thirdly, as our representative and substitute, he takes upon himself the consequences of human sin, what St. Paul calls the law of sin and death, offering himself as a perfect sacrifice so we can be set free. What could be better than that? We have every reason to rejoice. And over the next three sermons, we will spell out the extraordinary and wonderful implications for us, both as individuals and as God's people. But if we focus only on our individual status as those who have been set free from sin and death, we completely miss a much larger context. Recall the famous verse from John's Gospel. God so loved the world that he sent his son. God so loved the world. The world there is the whole creation, including the human race. A few years ago, there was a much talked about book with the title, This Changes Everything, which spelt out actually the consequences of global climate change. But that title stuck in my mind. This changes everything. It seems to me to describe perfectly the effect of Christ's death on the cross. The cross changes everything. Not just our individual relationship with God, but our whole world. Sin and death can and will be conquered and God's creation renewed. There is no need to be downcast about the state of our world because we hope in Jesus Christ who died for the whole world. 
Now that truly changes everything. Let's pray. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Our Father God, as we approach the events of Good Friday and Easter, we ask that you will help us to have a deeper understanding, not only in our minds, but also in our hearts, of your great initiative of love in rescuing your world from the catastrophe of sin and its consequences. And we pray that our lives will be filled with love and hope. In the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us. Amen.